the technical theological term for trusting your gut in this in this context, um, I believe, if I remember from my theology handbooks, it's called gaydar. Welcome to a special edition of the Barnhart Podcast. Uh, my notes tell me that this is allegedly episode number 141. Um, hopefully the first of many episodes, which we will categorize under V for Vanessa, the Vanessa Files. Um, welcome, Vanessa, our, our newest guest on the Barnhart Podcast. How you doing? Good, good. Thank you, Anne. Wonderful to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. And we should give the listenership a little bit of backgrounder on who you are, other than just, you know, a person who's been a longtime reader and listener and correspondent to my humble little website. So can you tell (laughs) us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am uh, coming up on April 19th next month, uh, another special anniversary. I believe that was the date that Pope Benedict was elected Mm -hmm. to the chair. Um, I will be celebrating seven years as a convert to the Catholic faith. Nice. Um, I was originally culturally Jewish, uh, growing up in a major metropolitan city in the U.S., absolutely no faith background whatsoever. Um, since that something was wrong, uh, after I achieved what the feminists call the feminist dream, I sensed that there was more to life um, than that. And that's what started me on my journey to convert to the Catholic faith. So I did that. I did a 180 in my life from being this career girl to um, seeking to find a vocation. Uh, luckily found that vocation. I have a wonderful husband and beautiful baby girl. And we moved from our major metropolitan city to the Midwest. Uh, This was about a couple months before Corona Scam descended upon the world. And we were doing what I know you have talked about on the show before and what many trad families talk about, which is starting a life that's more simple outside the city and focusing on the basics. So that has been my general, uh, general activities in the past year and a half. And are you currently gainfully employed outside the home or are you, are you mom? Full-time. No, 100% mom. Nice. Uh, absolutely no more corporate slavery. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it was very hard to switch gears because I went to a very um, feminist school. In fact, it's considered kind of the ground zero for the feminist experiment in education. Um, and so I believe I am one of five women from my graduating class. I'm 33 years old. I'm a grandma millennial. Um, I'm one of five women, I believe, from my research into my old classmates who is actually married with a child Yeah. at this point. Yeah. Not surprising. Yeah. Oh, so sad. So sad. Oh, and just before we, we go any further, I want to give a shout out to all the um, anti-Semitic, many of whom are 1958 set of and other people such as that who probably had kittens when you said I'm, you know, raised ethnically Jewish and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are saying that this is, that you're probably an infiltrator and you're here to corrupt all of us. And that <laughs> I, I, I clearly being on the payroll of the Mossad, that I like facilitated <laughs> this whole thing and that we're here to lay our wily feminine, um, Jewish and crypto Jewish Jezebel wiles on all of, of Trady land. And I just want to say to all those people out there, 
there who are listening and who are like foaming at the mouth and rubbing their hands together at this, you people should be absolutely ashamed of yourself and embarrassed and embarrassed. I doubt you are. I doubt seriously that you are. But, you know, we, we have a sister on here who converts from Talmudic rabbinic cultural ethnic Judaism into the one true faith. And there are people sitting out there listening to this podcast, thinking about how much they hate you and how wrong this all is. And how dare you, how dare you be, you know, talking publicly? How dare I be facilitating you in any of this? And uh, I just want to make sure that we, that we thoroughly shame those people right now. And, and I, I can at least say to them, you people should be absolutely ashamed of yourselves because I know you're out there and I know the hate mail is going to come and I'm just going to trash it like I do with all the rest of your crazy emails, folks. Well, so to, go ahead. To rub salt in the wound, um, I'm actually from the Kohanim priestly line. So oh it's just my gosh. Worse. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. It just got worse. It, oh, okay. Stop. Do you hear that? There's no, literally like, explosions happening right oh, now. There are people's oh. heads are exploding right Mazel now. Tov. Mazel, Mazel tov. Tov. <laughs> <laughs> I hear Hava Nagila in the background. Hava Nagila, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now that we got that out of the way, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. the first thing I want to jump right in with is that you were active in the whole Trump um, uh, recount and all of those efforts. And I, I know our listenership would be absolutely fascinated to hear your experiences and insights of what all happened and what all went down because the state that you're in is one of the, what there were like six of them, one of the six major states, um, you know, legally contested vote states. And you got to see, you know, the back room of the sausage factory a little bit. So, you know, lay it on us. We want to hear about this. Okay, well, stop me if I'm going on for too long, because this could be three podcasts, okay. quite frankly. Um, and yes, I'm, I'm still in the thousand yard stare, uh, you know, uh, status after seeing how the sausage was made, but I'll try to make this relevant. So essentially, I worked for 15 years in and around the political sphere um, in Washington, D.C., and um, I had been, you know, active through my work, but otherwise not so much. I'd never actually been a part of a candidate's campaign or a presidential campaign. And when my husband and I moved to our new state, I thought to myself, well, we have an election coming up at the end of the year. This was early 2020. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, when the baby's napping or for here and there, if I can help out to get President Trump reelected, I will. Um, I think all of us, you know, and this is pre-vaccine, which we can get into with Trump, mm-hmm. but pre-vaccine Trump, we all were kind of on board with him, right? Like, he seems to be the, the the best case scenario we can hope for in 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 this situation. Sure, he's, sure. he's not the Catholic monarch of our dreams, obviously, uh-huh. but you know he he's presenting the best options. And so, um, you know, I decided to walk into my local county Republican office and volunteer for the campaign. And what typically happens during campaign season is if, you know, this is for both Democrat and Republican, but just using Republican as an example, the presidential nominee for that party will set up campaign headquarters in major county Republican offices. So the the county Republican office is doing their business, and then the campaign comes in and has their own staff that kind of sits in a corner office, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
So I decided to join and immediately was put on a team that did phone banking. And for those who are not, not familiar with phone banking, essentially they give you an app and it calls people who are registered to vote in your area. And that you do two things. You try to get data from them that will help the campaign with messaging and just give them general data insights. And you also try to convince them to vote for the candidate that you are campaigning for. So that's what I did for the majority of the campaign season. Of course, there were events that we would go to. Um, most people would knock on doors. So from 8 a.m. in the morning to 9 p.m. at night, they were those people that you, you know, would hide when they came around, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and they would knock and try to talk to you and convince you to vote for the candidate. So we did that. We worked really hard. And actually, because of the efforts of the team that I was on, contributed 200,000 more votes for President Trump in 2020 than in 2016. Wow. So that's wow. in the county alone. So that just goes to show you that's how in it, the that's the county alone. That's the county alone. Yes. And we are a, we are a small to mid-sized city in the Midwest. Wow. So there is tons of numerical anecdotes that do show that first time voters came out in droves that people who hadn't voted for a long time got their butt in the polling booths. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were very proud of that. But as November 3rd turned into November 4th, and it became very clear that something in the milk wasn't clean, mm -hmm. uh, that's when the campaign started to pivot and had us do what I would call calling different battleground states and talking to voters to understand if they were able to successfully vote. And it was, we weren't clued in on the full plan because it was kind of compartmentalized as per what you were doing. But essentially, we were calling voters in states where there was discrepancies, asking them about their voter experience, taking notes, and then passing that on to Trump campaign attorneys. Mm -hmm. So I'll just give you an example of a story that I heard. So uh, called a man in one of the battleground states. He was in a city that was most notorious for fraud. And he said, you know, I went to go vote. And they said that they wouldn't let me because according to their notes, an absentee ballot was sent to my house that I never returned. He said to me, I never requested an absentee ballot. So as many, I'm sure, listeners have heard, uh, Democrats and other operatives flooded um, people's mailboxes with absentee ballots, even if they didn't request it. Mm -hmm. So they turned him away from the polls. They were very nasty to him. They said, we'll only accept your absentee ballot that we sent to your house. So this guy is really, he is irate as he's telling me this. He said he went home and dumpster dived for an hour to find his absentee ballot. Uh, he found it, brought it back. They didn't expect that he would actually have done that. So they still try to give him a hard time. But at the end of the day, they accepted his ballot. So that just gives you an example of the kind of calls and stories that we were hearing on the ground of how uh, just absolutely atrocious that the election was um, and how, how far gone the democratic process was at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't need to beat that. I think everybody listening knows that it was... It was a complete farce, and um, I think a sizable percentage of the listenership agrees with, uh, not speaking for you, but agrees with me that the Republic's dead, and this this was the this was the proof of it, finally, and now it's out in front of everybody. So keep going. Tell us more. More sausage. More sausage. So yeah, so essentially, we didn't really hear much of how those efforts uh, 
uh, kind of came to fruition, what we assume is that some of them were turned into affidavits. Uh, the, the attorneys would call some of these folks back from our notes, get sworn affidavits, and those were turned over into court cases. Some of those court cases were a campaign versus so-and-so, and some of those cases that I believe are still active, and I can give you some uh, a link to all the, all the cases that had come from the election in show notes, but essentially it was um, going to, whether it was state of Pennsylvania versus county clerk of Allegheny, there's a ton of litigation that happened as a result of this, but that was kind of the end of our, 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 you know, efforts in that regard. And so it was, yeah, it was very demoralizing, very upsetting. Um, and then I had another experience shortly thereafter where we had a special election in our, in my state uh, district, in my assembly district. And I think as many people found out from the election, um, state legislatures have a ton of power, that that's the people's house within each state that dictates all sorts of things, all sorts of matters, including election protocols. Mm -hmm. So one of the women that I volunteered with decided that she wanted to run for this state assembly seat. So she said to me, will you be my campaign manager? Um, was I totally qualified? No, probably not. <laughs> but we were so fired up from what happened at the election that we needed some sort of outlet to try and, I guess you could say, save our little slice of the republic, you know. Um, so we started on this on this journey. It was a month and a half primary. It was a Republican primary. Um, and essentially, she ran as a pro-Trump candidate, as someone who was for populism, you know, uh, you know basically totally agreed with his platform. And um, we got attacked by a PAC that was set up a week before the election, a political action committee. And the person behind the attacks was actually a Republican. Um, he was a shadowy swamp dealer in this state. Uh, a lot of people think that he's been out of politics for a long time, but he actually just became a backdoor power broker. And this is true in states across the United States, obviously. Yeah, right. And he set up this pack. He funneled $50,000 into this pack and sent out a ton of mailers that were completely slanderous and, 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 and just absolutely false about the candidate who I was managing. And it successfully worked in depressing the vote for her because uh, out of the 50,000 registered voters in this district, only 3,200 people showed up to vote in this primary. Um, staggering. So when people complain about the state of the union, well, most people aren't participating at all in the mm -hmm. state of the union. Um, so that was really, really depressing. And the last thing maybe I'll, I'll give of interest was obviously voter integrity was a huge concern and Dominion voting machines were a big concern. So I decided to call each of the clerks in my district. There were three counties in my district. I called the clerk of each one. All of them, except for one, had Dominion voting machines. And the one that said that they didn't have it said that they were on order and that they would be here in about six months. So at this point, the entire district uh, is, is Dominion voting systems, as is a lot of the country. Mm -hmm. And I talked to the clerk and I said to her, well, how do you know that these are, aren't faulty machines? How do you know these can't be hooked up to the internet? I mean, that's what we were all hearing, right, uh, on these on these talk shows, that Dominion voting machines would filter votes through Spain or, you know, Germany mm -hmm. and change vote tabulations. And I spoke to the clerk, and she was Republican, and she was very upstanding, and she was very proud of walking me through all of her procedures and protocols to ensure the safety of these machines, like tamper-proof ticker tape over the cartridge that holds the data, uh, about making sure that there are paper ballots to reconcile any kind of audit that needs to happen. So she walked me through this all very proudly. And I said to her at the end, I said, that's wonderful, Carol. But my question to you is, once you retire 
and activist Amy becomes clerk, can she hook this up to the internet? Can there be tampering? And she very reluctantly said yes. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the state of things going forward, I mean, as much as I want to encourage people to participate and try to save the union, I'm not quite sure how that can happen if these machines have completely taken over the United States and they're completely as good as the people who run them. Exactly. And now we, we're, it's coming into focus why Soros in particular has been just dropping enormous amounts of money on what most people up until just this past just this past election season thought were kind of trivial, unimportant, low-level, state-level um, offices, attorneys general, um, clerks, um, state legislature mm-hmm. type things. And now we're understand- understanding why, because it's exactly what you said. It's, it's not... It's not the vote. It's who counts the votes and who is uh, who's setting up and flipping the switches on the Dominion machine and who's turning the Wi-Fi enablement on or off or doing whatever it is that they do. And right. yeah, it's it's it. I think it just goes to show that in whatever reset that happens, um, we're going to have to get away from all machine voting of any kind, there's going to have to be either paper ballots or, um, I think a lot of people don't realize, Switzerland um, operates as a direct democracy, direct democracy. And Mm. that means that they have massive subsidiarity and they have... um, they have elections on the local level, and I'm I'm not kidding, I'm not being facetious, I've, I've grilled many Swiss friends about this. They do elections by show of hand. I mean, it's, it's every three months, everybody in the town who wants to vote shows up in the town square, someone stands at a microphone, reads out a thing, it's a yes or no, and there's literally a show of hands. And if, you know, the panel of people with cameras standing standing at the dais looking down on this crowd of people, if it's not completely glaringly obvious which way the vote goes, then it's declared, okay, now we're going to have to do a paper, ba- a paper ballot. But, I mean, a, most, for most things, a show of hand vote is completely definitive. Mm. And th- that's the level of subsidiarity that Switzerland, one of, and everybody agrees that Switzerland is one of the most advanced, um, civilized nations in the world. I mean, that's kind of what they're known for. Um, at super competent bureaucracies and all this, they literally have show of hand voting. So, but in order to do that, you've got to have subsidiarity and all of this massive, huge top level stuff has to has to basically go away. I mean, even you could conceivably see it getting to the point where county commissions um, end up voting on who to send to the state house and things like that. You know, there's all kinds of flexibility that that exists, can exist, that can be done. Uh, um, I think Americans just have tremendous tunnel vision with regards to governmental form and governmental paradigms. And they think it has to be the way it is now. And the way that the U.S. is set up and was set up right now is the only possible way that you can operate. And we see exactly the same thing with regards to the situation in the church. People look at the situation with the College of Cardinals and how corrupt that is. And well, how in the world are we going to ever have another um, uh, decent papal election, blah, blah, blah. And I keep trying to remind people, guys, um, 
the whole College of Cardinals thing, electing the Pope, has only been in existence for 60% of the 2,000-year history of the church, 40% of the 2,000-year history of the church. There was none of that. There were no cardinals. There were no conclaves. There were other means of um, filling the Sea of Peter. And we've got to think outside the box because it is absolutely true that the College of Cardinals is wildly corrupt in exactly the same way that Americans and other Western countries need to start looking at their governmental and election paradigms and saying, we have to move to something different because this isn't working anymore. And it's not going to work anymore. Um, The system is too big and too easily corrupted. And there are too many bad actors who are in positions of just unfathomable power. And the only way to get away from that is to radically change it. And it's going to have to be collapsed back down to the local level to an absolutely radical extent. So um, speaking of that, um, you brought up Trump and his whole um, Operation Warp Speed. And apparently he's still pushing the death jab. Um, how, How did you... In in the moment, what were you saying, and what were your what were your colleagues saying about that? So, just really quickly to go back to the point you just made, you were talking about um, transparent voting and, and things like that. So, something also very interesting happened locally, which was, and this is something that maybe folks aren't quite aware of, but your local county GOP office has an incredible amount of power if they know how to wield it. And unfortunately, in many of these big cities, they know exactly what they're doing. So the county chair of the Republican Party where I'm at, the day after the election, we were looking to him to make a statement about the fraud. We had a very famous case of fraud in our city. And the guy was completely silent. Yeah. And we couldn't figure out, was he in on stuff? Was he just being cowardly? Not quite sure. And that's when we started to realize that the only way forward on that local level within the party, if you're trying to gut and uh, you know hostily take over the Republican apparatus, is essentially to show up, become a member of the local Republican Party, be a card-carrying member. It's about 30 bucks, depending on your county. And to show up to the caucus that they have every year, every county office has a caucus. And the person who's currently chair will basically say, I'm running for chair again, all in favor say aye, and everyone in the room raises the hand and says Mm -hmm. aye, or nay, or people say nay. And what's interesting about that is the caucus happened before any of this chair's shadiness became apparent. So unfortunately, he was voted in for another two years. However, all of the folks that were working for the Trump campaign within that office have now banded together. We've, we've, you know, remained friends. We all became members and essentially we're waiting for the next caucus. If it's even worth it at that point, if there's a United States of America um, (laughs) to show up to the caucus and to nay him out of that position. Now, this also happened in another neighboring county. Uh, the chair was up for re-election. She is extremely power hungry. And there was a pro-Trump uh, member who was trying to take the chair away from her. All of a sudden, before the vote, she decides to make it secret paper ballot. Uh, no, mm. no, no surprise. She retained her position. And unfortunately, the people who are present didn't know enough to say, hey, 
knock it off. Go back to verbal. Go back to that direct mm-hmm. result that you can't deny. And so I kind of fear it's a combination of people being lazy and not knowing how to be involved. And it's also this narcissistic malaise that we're all laboring under. We've been kind of hypnotized by these power-hungry people who just tell us exactly how the system should go. And if you dare disagree, you will be isolated, you will be shunned. And, and we did see it here on that local level. So that's just my little nugget from from seeing how that happens, you're 100% correct. If it's not verbal, if it's not something that everyone can see and everyone can confirm, well, as the Washington Post says, democracy does indeed die in darkness. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a yeah. it's Alinsky Rule 13, and I think that a lot of a lot of people who might still be naive on the political right think that Alinsky and all of that and his rules for radicals, that those tactics are only used by people on the left. And Mm-mm. it's it's not mm-hmm. it's not that it's a necessarily even political thing, because remember who rules for radicals was dedicated to by Alinsky. The dedication was to Lucifer. So you have mm. to understand that in any paradigm, you know, where there's evil lurking around and it's everywhere, it's on the left, it's on the right, it's on the far right, rules for radicals isn't so much, you know, Alinsky making stuff up. It's just him writing down the way evil, shady people operate. And Alinsky 13 is the one that says, um, isolate, name call, polarize, freeze them out, you know, all of that. Name name calling, which is, I mean, we've, we've all lived through that to some extent. People who are on social media and, and all of that garbage. I mean, there have been tremendous Alinsky 13 campaigns going on between trad Catholics. And it's just, it's, it's not political. It's not the domain necessarily the left. It's just human, fallen human nature whenever, whenever Lucifer gets a foothold in any paradigm or any group. So, you know, it's, it really is worthwhile to, have have the uh, Wikipedia page of Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, you know, in your bookmarks so that you can you you know you can go to it and go down the line and just say can I ide- can I identify what's going on here and that will at least give you a little bit of a little bit of tactical footing so that you're not just you know completely shocked and shocked and gobsmacked all the time by things that people are doing and perhaps doing to you personally so. Right. And just to see people kind of catch on to this, you know, as, as a traditional Catholic, you know, you're, you're kind of aware of this paradigm going into any situation in life that it's really a battle of good versus evil. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to see most of the people I was, I was working with, they were, you know, boomer generation, uh, mm-hmm. maybe boomer generation, older women, mostly, and they were all kind of waking up to the fact that all their children were liberal, and they had no idea why. Uh, <laughs> that you know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was like the resident millennial kind of trying to teach them like you guys what they taught us in school it's no surprise why things are are the way they are unfortunately my mother's generation just never decided to check too deeply to see what we were being taught Mm -hmm. they just kind of trusted the system and now the chickens are coming home to roost unfortunately with with the vaccine i mean all of us that were working on the campaign we all were immediately suspicious about it um you know trump did do a good job at the beginning of pushing prophylactics and so that kind of calmed everybody but yeah towards the end in authorizing this warp speed stuff, we all were just starting to talk and be like, what's this all about? I don't really know. But because it wasn't being pushed too hard before the election, um, we just kind of sort of compartmentalized it and focused on the fraud. And perhaps 
That is the grand demonic design. Distract all of us with this political theater um, because we're all sitting, like, what are we all doing right now? We're all sitting here wondering, what the heck is Trump's deal? Were we just psyoped by the guy? Were, were yep. we psyoped by everybody? Who's with us? Who's against us? Um, and so, yeah, was this all a distraction for just quietly vaccinating millions and millions of people? In my state alone, uh, over 2 million people have at least received the first dose of the vaccine. And I'll bet you they just mindlessly walked into the local pharmacy, got it, and then went home and started scratching their head about what's up with Trump. And and, and really, that was the goal, just distract you, in my opinion. And meanwhile, this, this operation continues unabated. And then so much information about it is just not out there. For example, my husband's mother, um, she qualified as one of the people who are most in need. She votes Republican. She considers herself conservative, but has no faith life whatsoever. And she got the vaccine, uh, told us after the fact. And that's when my husband said, well, have you heard about this side effect, that side effect? And she said, no, I, I didn't hear about any of that. No, of course not. No. Yeah. Yeah. So we're just in this, you you know, total disorientation, this fog of war. Um, and it's disturbing. I mean, I, I wish I had good answers and, you know, but you said it best in a couple of podcasts when asked about Trump, it's like, I just don't know what his deal is, but it's not looking good right now. I, I can't see a way that he's um, working for any sort of good, especially since he just plugged the vaccine yesterday on Maria Bortiromo on Fox News. She asked him, you know, do you think people should take it? He said, well, there's freedoms and I understand that. But yeah, everyone should go get it. And he said it at the CPAC speech, too, when he came out saying, everyone, go get your vaccine. So whether he's doing this by design or he's feeling pressure from aides who are saying, hey, you know, people don't like that you're not strong enough on safety during the, the pandemic, I, you know, whether or not he knows or not. Can't say for sure, but not looking good, right? Yeah, it's, and when he went to CPAC, I mean, CPAC, for the listenership who don't know, it's an annual, allegedly conservative, kind of aimed towards younger people, young conservative, huge convention, they all get together, you know, big people, I mean, you know, a decade ago or more, who would have been headlining CPAC, like Sarah Palin and yeah. uh, Glenn Beck and all those, you know, I haven't paid attention to this stuff for quite some time, but it still happens every year. But what I heard and cottoned onto pretty quick in 2011 and then again in like 2014, th this CPAC convention with all these young kids in their 20s and 30s who are entering into the political machine and th they intend for this to be their career, is that it was basically a gigantic orgy that it would it was just a huge hookup culture thing um, mm -hmm. gay gay mm -hmm. and straight gay and straight they would mm -hmm. put you know huge punch bowls filled with condoms out all over the hotel and up in the you know in the lot in the hallways where in the hotel and that it was just it was a gigantic orgy and you're thinking okay all right I, I, I see what's going on here and we need to get past all of this because it's just, it's wildly corrupt and irredeemable. And it's, it's, you know, people want to be on teams for some, some reason. And a lot of people are just kind of amoral and they look at a situation they look at one side, they look at the other side. And it's just a matter of where do they get an invitation in? They don't care ideologically either way. It's just how can I get into a team, a club, a clique, a group? How can I, you know, 
have all these um, ready-made friends. And in the case of politics, especially with young people, it's it's a massive hookup culture. And so they're they're told, you know, you come come do this, come come to CPAC, you know, get a get stay in the hotel, and I promise you, you'll you'll hook up with at least four different people, you know, and things like that. It's really really gross, really disgusting. It makes you realize, you know, that the Basically, the entire political paradigm, right and left as it exists right now, is is basically irredeemable, which is why I'm so happy to have you on here, because you're one of the only people I know who who still engaged the 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 process um, through this this last cycle. And my question to you now is, is it your intention to engage it anymore or after what you went through over the past you know, three, four months, or are you just like, nah, I'm done? Um, you know, I, I guess I've always had this fighter mentality. I've always wanted to, um, you know, try to fight for the good and, you know, thought that we did have a good system going for a long time. Um, and so, I, you know, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I guess I, I have somewhat of a pragmatist or somewhat of a strategic view of things. I, I mean, I appreciate Steve Bannon's show, for example. I would listen to his podcast where he would just kind of talk out, okay, like, how do we actually, how do we take the left on? How can we get through this? And, you know, at first I was interested in listening. And at first I was like, okay, but at the end of the day, it's kind of like, now that they've captured the vote tabulation, now that we see that every state legislature has been rendered completely impotent, right. um, if, if even the basic foundations of how this works is so totally corrupt. And then like you mentioned, there's all of these Soros, you know, AGs and other local uh, officials. I, I mean, we're almost surrounded and it's too late from an earthly perspective. I don't mean to be such a Debbie Downer. I do want to be, you know, honest with people. And, and I think until we can fix that, there's not really much that can be done. Um, so you know, I, I don't know, I'm torn between kind of, I mean, I've had these back and forth moods of like, I just want to hide in my basement, take care of my kid and, you know, screw everything else. And then sometimes I'm like, well, is there a way for us to kind of take over this local party and then prop up candidates that could have a chance? But then if we did, the, you know, there's still Dominion voting machines and if it's in the wrong, so yeah, it, it's, it's sad, it's frustrating, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of like, again, just uh, kind of sick of it at this point. Yeah. I think yeah. I think a lot of people are right there with you. Um, I, I don't know. The, I what I keep coming back to is elected monarchy. Um, as crazy as that sounds to Americans, but um, obviously, looking at oddly enough, bringing into this conversation the train wreck of Prince Harry and uh, Mrs. Trevor Engelson, <laughs> Meg, Meghan Markle. The dread strumpet Engelson, the, the, yes. The dread the strumpet Engelson, yes. Um, <laughs> but what that all is bringing back to the fore is just the absolute joke of hereditary monarchy. Because you, you look at this train wreck and you're just sitting there thinking, why in the world do these people and I'm talking about all of them, the, the whole royal family of, of the United Kingdom. Why, why do any of these people have any position, status, anything? These, these people are midwit, um, moral degenerates, most of them. Why? Just just because of the circumstances of their birth. And, and you know, I made a post about we're not even sure about Harry's 
even relationship to any of these people. Um, you oh, know, that picture you posted side by side with uh, I Mr. Mean, Hewitt was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I mean God, God forgive me, God forgive me, and, and Harry forgive me if I'm wrong, but dude, I mean, there's a certain point where you just have to look at what's right in front of you, and, uh, well, Princess Diana and James Hewitt both said that their affair started after Harry was born. No, no, they they said that really. Well, of course he's of course gonna they did, yeah. he's gonna say that because if you're if you're you know if you've made the future king of England a cuckold. Uh, just about the only honorable thing that you could possibly do at that point forward is to not humiliate him in a certain sense, even though lying is always wrong. But you see what I'm saying? I mean, like, right. the, 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 what he should have done is just kept his mouth shut. Um, but, of course, then he couldn't have cashed cashed in on the whole thing and written a tell-all book and all of that. Um, what, but what do you think Diana's going to do? especially Diana. She's birthed, she's birthed this kid into a multi, multi, multi-billionaire familial situation. What, what do you think she's going to do? She's going to say, oh yeah, yeah, I was having an affair with so-and-so and Harry probably isn't, isn't Charles's. As if she's going to actually say that. Right, she, right. She would never, ever, ever, ever say that. She would never do that to him. She's not going to disinherit him or any of that. So you look at these pictures and you're just like, look, look, this is this is just this is honey boo boo. Except these people <laughs> just happen to be born into this multi billionaire family that allegedly is some sort of a hereditary monarchy. So we can all sit there and look at that and say. No, there, there is no possible way that we can have anything like that. However, how can we fuse meritocracy into the stability of a monarchy and the ability to get things done that a true monarchy, monarchy should have? And that is an elected monarch. And the two great examples of that are obviously the Pope. Um, if, if Christ Jesus himself, if the second person of the triune Godhead says, I'm going to set up a thing and it's going to be an elected monarchy, you should probably pay attention to that because that probably means it's a pretty good and stable system. Um, and the other great example of this is the Republic of Venice, which is which was one of the most stable republics in human history, um, and it was an elected mer- meritocratic um, monarchy. And you look at that and you say, okay, that can make sense. Can we find one man who who's worthy to wield a significant amount of power? but who will also make sure that subsidiarity is in play and is enforced and isn't going to try to power grab. Is there one guy on the face of this planet who could potentially do that? Can we go find this person and can we get together as a civilization and say, okay, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to elect you. I mean, you got to start well, somewhere. Go ahead. And it's so funny because I feel like, you know, the, obviously God's design in natural law is inscribed in the human heart. And we do almost yearn for that. We yearn for that kind of that one figure that can represent it. And I think that's what you saw happen subconsciously or consciously with a lot of the electorate here um, loving and almost worshiping Trump yeah. like way too much. They were were yearning for that kind of one person who can 
be this center of moral authority. Obviously, it's not going to be Trump, but he kind of filled that vacuum because otherwise, what do we have? We have this democracy of like Nancy Pelosi, who, by the way, ironically, is like the monarch of my life, right? She's been in office as long as I've been alive. Yeah. What's the difference there, right? Like what, there, there's no difference. So I completely agree. There has to be a different system. We're, but I, I fear we're way too far down the track and that people are way too unaware at this point we see what evil is doing and they've, they've advanced so far. If we were to have a fighting chance at this point within this system, it would require every red blooded male becoming completely Catholic, a hundred percent in line with the church, getting together and having no fear of laying their life down for the Republic. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because at the end, and it's really unpleasant to say, and it shouldn't be said flippantly, but as I've been saying, like for over a year now, since the Corona scam started, I mean, you know, I think I called it as a scam in late February. And then Mm -hmm. when the lockdowns and all that crap started in March, I started saying to absolutely everyone around me, everyone who would listen, this will never end without war. And not, and not a war of words, not a war of rhetoric or, or, you know, people having pissing matches on Twitter or anything like that. This will never end. If you permit this to happen, and if you go along with this, this two weeks to flatten the curve, it will never end without war. And people are, don't want to hear it. They don't want anything to do with it. And the, the sad thing that I'm seeing is that where I am, people, especially men, are, at first they were joking about suicide, you know, and then and now it's transitioned into um i think i mentioned this on a previous podcast um one of the guys in my neighborhood confessed to me because even though people don't believe me none of these people have any idea who i am but people like to talk to me and always have liked to talk to me for some reason i guess i'm a good listener it's the fabulous hats it's the hats it's the hats absolutely (laughs) uh the secret stays under the brim of the hat yes exactly (laughs) yeah but he confessed to me that he is now at this point uh because his his entire business career everything has been completely and totally ruined i mean just just ruined and he said to me that at this point he is either stoned on xanax which is a um anti-anxiety benzodiazepine which is those drugs are from hell bad news so he's either stoned on xanax weed or both at all times wow and he believes that his life is over and that he has absolutely no future and he's just he's basically slouching and i think there's this is a lot of what's going on and i think this is the plan he is slouching towards euthanasia and i think it's going to be faster than any of us can imagine that people especially young people are going to be clamoring the government to give them euthanasia centers just just let us end this painlessly or so they think i i sadly agree and so much of my generation because they're not married or have children they have no incentive to live for something outside of themselves and you know i i converted when i was 26 years old um and so i certainly remember my adult life and and conscious before coming into the church and it i mean for those of you who were born in the church or you know it, it, you have no idea how how blessed you are because the framework that you have 
have before you come into the church or know anything about God being the center of all things and then everything coming into order under that, you have no moral anchor. You have no uh, uh, landscape with which to see things clearly. You can so easily slip into such diabolical paradigms and decisions and behaviors. And that was my life before I converted to the church. And so I am extremely zealous. I am, some people think I'm too intense, but I'm like, you have no idea. If you if, if you know what it's like to be adrift in this pagan world, really was what it is at this point. Um, the church is the only thing that can save you and give you that clarity and give you that comfort and give you that peace. And if you don't have that in times, of, I mean, it's hard enough for us as practicing Catholics to stay strong in times of struggle. And But what about for someone like you just described? Mm-hmm. I mean, y- you want to check out as soon as possible, I would, I would imagine. Yeah. And I, w- I would imagine, yeah. I think this is the first time in human history when um, on, on a civilizational scale, the men... And I mean, also the women, but let's just talk about the men for a moment. The men would rather drug themselves into a stupor and it doesn't even occur to them to fight. I mean, when I bring up, you know, you guys, we're going to have to fight a war. The only way out of this is we're going to have to fight a war. The only way to make these people stop is to force them to stop. And by force, I mean physically force them. They're going to have to be physically removed from office. They're going to have to be physically removed from power. And they look at me like I'm, like I'm from, I can't even say from Mars, because, you know, there's, we, we got junk on Mars now. They, 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 <laughs> yeah, they look right. at me like I'm from Neptune or something, you know. They're just like, they have no idea what I'm talking about. The entire will to live, to fight, um, to not be basically um, figuratively raped to death this is the first time in human history where there's no desire on the part of the men to offer any sort of resistance to this. And, you know, that's what's terrifying. Oh, exactly. The The ratio of men to women in the office that when I was volunteering for the campaign was ridiculous. It was 90% women, if not 95%. And you just kind of wonder where are the able-bodied, red-blooded American males who are interested in getting involved? And so after the election that I was involved in with the, the woman whose campaign I managed, and again, I don't like women in politics, but because the Republic is hitting the fan quickly, I was kind of an all hands on deck and she was the best candidate. But at the afterwards, people came to us and said, oh, you should try doing this or try doing that. We both agreed, no, we are two women. I mean, her children are grown, um, but, you know, we are two women who are moms. Like, we're, this is not our job. That's right. This is not our job, right? This is a man's job. And it's, it's even odd, too, because I see in my parish, um, you know, in, in past parishes, you'll see men who maybe they should be going into civil service and fighting the evil there, or they should be going into public life, but they're like either majoring and getting a PhD in theology, like we need more of those, or, you know, just saying, well, I don't want to be involved in anything. I'm just going to hunker down. Well, that mentality from men has kind of led us to where we are today. So while I agree with you that, that, uh, you know, involvement is somewhat futile at this point, ironically, it's because people thought it was futile 60 years ago, however long ago, and just stopped getting involved. Yeah, I think, I think that sense of futility, I don't know, probably, I think, I think people were pretty, optimistic during the Reagan administration because you know I was I was alive during all during the Reagan administration um America really bounced back after Carter I mean Carter was awful awful and then and then Reagan came in and and America really did bounce back um even in terms of 
of um, interior morale and all that. I th I think the end was was Clinton. I really do. I think you know, and we all now know that George H. W. Bush was bad news. Bad news. The general judgment. <laughs> I think that an entire like morning session is going to have to be dedicated to our Lord saying, all right, let me explain George H.W. Bush to you people. And then we're all just like, going to settle be down, like, get yeah. your coffee, That's right. <laughs> pour, pour your glass of wine. I mean, <laughs> yep. I remember seeing a clip. This was, I believe, um, towards the end of, of George H.W. Bush's term. This was an interview with his wife, Barbara. And the interviewer, I think it was Diane Sawyer, was like, well, how do you feel on a woman's right to choose now? And she goes, well, I've changed my mind. I do think that women have a right to choose. I mean, conservatives lost the culture war like right there like it was over right there and, and, and today you talk to most conservatives even most Trump, Trump supporters they're fine with contraception they're fine oh, yeah. with the homosexual agenda so if we were to have a fighting chance you know we need most people who are not on board with that and that's why unfortunately it does look relatively futile <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so, yeah, I mean, I think you can see right now that the, the party is struggling to decide. I mean, how do we feel about, you know, having the gay agenda in? You're seeing some pushback from some younger Christian conservatives. I don't think it's enough to actually make a difference and steer things in the right direction, though. Yeah, so. agreed. I mean, they're just they're just aren't the numbers. And, you know, bringing up, you know, we hanging out in trad parishes and almost everyone we talk to anymore probably especially now um are are other trad catholic people and you got to remember how how microscopic that sample is relative mm -hmm. to the whole i mean we we tend to think that oh well everyone i you know speak to on a on a monthly basis is is against abortion and is against um against sodomy and then realize that we're it, basically. We're, we're all that's left. I mean, even the Southern Baptists are, are, are losing, the, losing the plot on all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. um, all the megachurches, they've been gone for a long time because most of them are Presbyterian. They're just all right. complete hot messes. Oh, shock, you know. Um, but it's, it, let's, let's now segue, though, in since we brought it up. Um, you um, converted in. Now, when you converted, did you convert in through the Novus Ordo or did you convert in through a trad situation? So it was, it's interesting The the program, the RCIA program, I went through twice, actually, the first time I was told, oh, you were three weeks late to the RCIA program, so you'll have to be baptized the next year. And I didn't know enough to fight for myself at that point. But ultimately, I ended up being baptized in a quasi-trad parish. It was run by an order of priests that did both the Novus Ordo and the TLM. So I did get that. But unfortunately, my sacraments of initiation were Novus Ordo. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. if you say RCIA, then that's by that's, definition. Yeah, 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 that's by definition. <laughs> yeah. And and let me just say, um, you had to go through twice because you know Jews need need the double dose. I'm so I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's so sad because I remember I show up and it's this really disgruntled looking, you know, older woman who worked at the at the parish, and she, I think she was even smoking a cigarette outside, and she was like, "Ah, well, you're a couple weeks late, so I, you know, you can't be baptized this Easter," which was at that point six months away. Oh my like, gosh. you know, I couldn't catch up in three weeks. Right. Three weeks yeah. um, 
And I didn't realize enough to realize how horrid that situation was. And I never saw the pastor of the church except for once in the coffee room, bumped into him, and that was it. And so it's, yeah. it's definitely a very dismal state in the Nova It was Ordo. the same yeah. in the one that I went through. Um, the, the women, and again, it was um, not elderly, but... I, I would. I, I think those women were all collecting social security checks. Let's put it yeah. that way. Um, yeah. Who were running the RCIA? They ran the program, and I never. I converted into the Catholic Church without ever speaking to a priest. Which I look back in mm-hmm. retrospect and think that the divine providence and like Saint Mike, Michael were like, <laughs> yeah. keep her away. Away. From oh, that's the so true. <laughs> That's such a good point. I didn't even think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So I made it all the way in without ever, ever speaking to a priest. I mean, you saw the, you saw the priest at mass, obviously. Obviously. Yes. Never, yes. ever came over. And I mean, there were like, good grief. How many people were in that, that class? 25, 30 people in the RCIA class. Mine the priest was never 10. Was in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 10. Oh, okay. All right. That's Mine was 10. Intimate. I was, I was the only one who was not there because I was marrying a Catholic. Um, yep. I think you had yep. a similar situation. Yeah. Yep. Almost yeah. everyone in my class was being drug in by their hair. Um, exactly. there, there was, I was straight up converting and then there was a couple who were Episcopalian and right before, so I started in the fall of 2006, right before this, we'd have to Google search it. The Episcopal Church USA did some huge gay thing. Um, I don't know what, but they did some gay, probably gay marriage thing or gay blessing thing. And these people said, all right, that's it. The earth is split open. And the, the Episcopal Church USA fell into the, into the crevasse. It, mm-hmm. it, it no longer exists. We always said we would never, ever, ever enter the Catholic Church, and we would never, ever, ever enter the Catholic Church through a parish named after Mary. And of course, the name of the parish was Our Lady of Loretto. So, <laughs> so that <laughs> jokes was a, on them. A jokes on you. Teehee, Our Lady gotcha. The, the the internet says it was a 2006 general convention. I think where they yep. declared homosexuality acceptable. Yeah. Yep. yep. That was it. That was it. Yep. Those were really nice people. But I think, yeah, we were. We were basically the only ones. Everyone else was marrying in. And the horrible story, but I have to retell it just so the listenership knows how bad the situation is. The, not the Easter vigil of 2007 when I was received, but the next Easter 2008, of course, you know, all the people who were in the, in the class the previous year are asked to come back. And yes, I lectured. I was a lectorette. For the, uh, guilty as charged. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. So I lectoretted. In fact, my reading at the Easter Vigil of 2008 was the epistle. Mm. It was the epistle. Um, and so then, you know, da, 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 everything happens. And it's time for father to give his sermon and he opens his sermon by looking over at all of these you know all these 30 people who have just been baptized uh, and or confirmed and welcomed into the church and says i want to extend an especially warm greeting to all of our catechumens and uh, confirmandi and give you our our warmest assurances of all of our prayers because we know we'll probably never see any of you at mass ever again and the entire church exploded into uproarious laughter. No. And I was like, okay. 
oh my I goodness. need to figure something out here because that's just <laughs> oh that's bad and, oh and, that's bad yeah. and this is and this is one of the most conservative parishes in the archdiocese of denver which is which is considered to be one of the most conservative archdioceses in the united states and that was the opening joke of the priest's homily or sermon <sighs> at the easter vigil mass we're like, you want to laugh, you want to cry, mostly you want to cry. And, and I think as every year that goes by that you deepen in your faith, you look back on some of these things with just abject horror of the the levity with which these things are discussed or just the, the I mean, what, what I mean, you were obviously super self-motivated, but what if, what if someone was like, oh, well, I mean, if that's what he thinks I'm going to do, I might as well just never come back. I mean, exactly. I, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and th the notion of telling people in RCIA that, you know, it's against the what is it third commandment to miss mass on sunday if you're if you're going to do this understand you have to go to mass every sunday for the rest of your life unless you have a really really good reason not to i mean if you're sick you better really be sick and you know th th nothing nothing like that is ever said and they they will tell you the the RCIA people they'll all tell you they say look if we, if we talked like that we'd scare everybody out of here and I'm like is isn't that the yeah. point I mean isn't it to kind of like figure out who should be entering the church and who shouldn't and discerning all of these things aren't you doing people a terrible terrible disservice by baptizing them and confirming them and then just giving them up to to potentially eternal damnation hell is worse for the baptized and it's even worse yet for the confirmed because you had the baptismal garment man you had it and then you gave it all up um so that's that's why for example the church teaches that you cannot you should not clandestinely go around and baptize like you shouldn't like go on a mission trip to deepest darkest inner china roll into some village clandestinely baptize all the kids and then leave you shouldn't do that because you don't there's no assurance whatsoever that any of those children are going to be raised in the faith and hell is worse for the baptized because at their particular judgment their our lord is going to tell them you are actually baptized and you were you were completely abandoned and given up you had the baptismal garment and then you violated the natural law when you did this 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 and this and it would all be a function of the natural law at that point you know right so right i mean and it's it's you don't mess around with that stuff and it seems like with a lot of the rci pro rcia programs it's just all about numbers and they really are messing around with people's souls and they're not really being serious about you know, discerning people in and out of the church. Good grief, the, the, the catechumenate back in the early centuries of the church, it was like at least five years. And, and this, oh, is yeah. when, this is yeah. when people were being slaughtered by the Romans for having any connection whatsoever to Christianity. They would still take five years to educate people and make sure that people were ready for this and really meant it. And now we'll just, we'll throw it at absolutely anybody, you know? Well, there was a moment for, I remember in our CIA, this is towards the end where you qualify, you would know more than me, by virtue of baptism by blood, you would qualify for a Christian rite burial at some point right before the actual Easter vigil. Mm -hmm. And 
And I looked that up because I was like, oh, what's this all about? And that's when I first realized how uh, dangerous it was and how many people had given their lives just to join the church. And here I was sitting in the basement of the rectory with a Starbucks, like, hey, guys, like, let's talk about this. I mean, like, you know, it's such a disconnect from what it actually was and what it will be. Let's just be honest, Um, you know, and so the turning point for me with what you were saying with priests and saying, oh, we can't turn people off or drive them away is the year after I was baptized, I was asked to be the godmother of a girl. She was coming from a foreign country and she confessed to me pretty soon before baptism. She said, listen, I have a Muslim family who is very upset that I'm doing this and and they could be, you know, coming here to hurt me or anyone associated with my conversion. Oh, and also I was part of a satanic cult previously in my, in my previous country. And I remember going and, and she also at the time lived with her fiance Um, and so I went to the priest and I said, listen, like this girl's got a lot going on here. If she's sincere about coming into the church, of course, like I'll be her godmother and she should be coming in, but she doesn't know a lot of the basics of what sin, mortal sin really is. Mm -hmm. She's living with this fiance. She has a satanic past. Um, does she need extra help? And essentially the priest said to me, well, let's just get them into the tent. Let's just get them into the tent first. And I said immediately, I said, uh, yeah, but we can't have them come into the tent and burn it down. I mean, you know, like, so that to me was my turning point of, okay, this is really, a lot of times this is about numbers or it's a misplaced idea of charity. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just get them in first. And it's like, but then you're setting them up. No one who's getting baptized today or in the past, you know, 30 years is coming into the church with an immense amount of secular baggage. I'm not saying that a priest should be a therapist and be overly wrought and navel gazing with with the catechumens, but you have to know where these people are and how to set them up for success and how programmed they've been or what they've or or any associations they've been, you know, with, like in this girl's case, that could cause severe impediment spiritually to being successful in the Catholic faith. Oh, well said. Exactly. Exactly. It's um it's not taken seriously. And I think I think we know why it's not taken seriously in the Novus Ordo paradigm, because, you know, not not much not much is taken seriously in the Novus Ordo paradigm, and that's 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 just visible by the liturgy itself. Sadly, um, was it was your Novus Ordo liturgy in that it, it was kind of a semi semi sort of a parish? Did they at least have was was their Novus Ordo liturgy informed by traditional rubrics? Yes, it was. So, you know, thankful for that. But I think the problem that remained was the over-involvement of the laity Mm -hmm. and then the laity's um, general attitude towards the Mass, which would permeate everything. I mean, I I remember wearing a mantilla to one of the Novus Ordo um, Masses that I went to and just got stared at daggers the Mm -hmm. entire time by most women. Um, You know, the choirs that make it all about the choir instead of, you know, being an accompaniment to the Mass. Um, So even though it was done as well as it could be, I think it's definitely a glaring example of how, even at its best, the Novus Ordo still does not foster the level of spirituality needed to combat the world today and to be in in as much of a state of grace as you can be. So, Of course. Now, this leads to the question, you're married, you are a a mother, you of Mm -hmm. course met your husband at, at church. Yes. You met him in the RCIA. 
No, no, did not, did not know. So um, I, he, he was a bit of a lapsed Catholic. And so um, when I kind of figured that out, but had, you know, a lot of abundant, I would say natural virtue, very, very good guy. And I said to him, listen, I'm very into the Latin mass. I go frequently. There is no sex before marriage. Um, you know, if you're not down with this, I understand. And he said, um, I will go to confession tomorrow for the first time in 15 years. Wow. Um, and he did and has taken to the Latin mass and the Latin, you know, traditional culture extremely well. Um, I don't recommend that as par for the course for single girls out there. I think he's a rare exception. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think if you have those high standards for yourself, stick to what the church teaches. If someone rises to meet that, you know, that that's another soul to, to bring in. So I'm going to claim him as at least one point in front of our Lord when he asked me, who did you, who did you bring into the church or who, who did you inspire to come into the church? I can at least claim that one. So yay! <laughs> yay! <laughs> now, um, <clears throat> try, trying to create a completely non-obvious uh, premeditated segue here. Did you did you have any um, any gentleman suitors before you met your husband when you were you know in the trad milieu? Um, not well, sort of, but not really. I think um, it, there was a lot of um, not knowing how to properly court a girl. I would say um, a lot of um, men and women who I think come into the traditional milieu um, are still bringing a lot of their secular world mentality to things, even dating. Um, and so, not not entirely as much as I thought. No. Did you make any other observations? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. So it's funny. So I, I grew up in a city that um, is very well known for its gay culture. And in fact, there is a very unfortunate picture of me as a toddler in the arms of a drag queen um, on this street during a Halloween parade that had famously turned into the Halloween drag parade of that city. So my, my mom went down to watch, thought I was funny, got a picture with this drag. So this is all to say I'm quite familiar with the gay culture, had lots of gay friends growing up. And so when I came into the church, um, especially the traditional church where, you know, things are taken very seriously and this, the church teaching on these things are quite clear, I just didn't assume that there would be, you know, homosexuals within the traditional milieu, or if there were, you know, they were following the rules or, you know, struggling with that same sex attraction in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. um, what I ended up finding, unfortunately, was a very flourishing gay subculture mm -hmm. within the traditional church. And it kind of expands throughout parishes. They're all connected and internationally as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was very surprising to me because at first I didn't catch on to it um, because I was naive, even though I'm very jaded in a worldly way in, in the traditional milieu when I first came in, I was naive. Uh, and then when I found out that that was the case and that some of these people in the laity and, and, and unfortunately showing a lot of these signs in the clergy as well and in, in select clergy, um, it was very disturbing to me because I thought to myself, wait a minute, like they don't take this seriously or is this a joke or um, a lot of queenie behavior, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, a lot of drama within the parish, um, men who were single for quite some time, but never dating anyone, never talking about dating anybody. Yeah. Um, a lot of power grabbing within the parishes as well. I want to be the MC. No, you be the MC. Um, so once I found out that that was happening at, at, at a parish that I was at, I had to make the decision. It's no longer spiritually healthy for me 
to be here and and had to leave. And so that was a big turning point in my faith because even though it was jarring, I decided to use it as an opportunity to dig further into my faith instead of saying, oh, this is disturbing and, and leaving. So, you know, it ultimately got me to a better place. But I think you have some experience with that as well. Yes, <laughs> yes. And it's it's sadly, it's getting to be it's getting to be more and more of a problem. And, you know, that whole I, I don't know. The question that you have is, are all of them gay or are there just some extraordinarily misguided young men who think that that whole Evelyn Waugh, Brideshead Revisited, I'm going to mm-hmm. wear bright pink bow ties and, you know, tight pants and, tight yeah. pants and, and be a, be a poof or a, you know, dandy. Try, be a dandy, try, try to be, you know, Lord Sebastian Flight incarnate you know i mean <laughs> yes that's so well put yeah, yeah. and and but but, but the, i mean talking about gay the fact of the matter is nobody's gay but it is it is a terrible everyone is heterosexual but there is a terrible habitual sin that people can fall into and if it becomes sufficiently habitual and they fall for the cultural propaganda about it they start saying that i am that sin I am gay. I am homosexual, um, and that's that's a complete misnomer because everybody is heterosexual. You know, what I mean, check the, check the anatomy book, folks. Everybody's heterosexual. Um, Right. So Milo Yiannopoulos had a great commentary on this. Actually, I know a lot of people have heard that he has, um, you know, decided to say he's he's, he's ex-gay now. He's going through the process of converting more deeply. And um, he was doing an interview with John Henry Weston, and he made a very insightful comment, basically saying that a lot of the trauma that happened to me as a young man, I internalized and then thought that that was my identity and that I was making these free will choices based off of this trauma that had warped me. And I thought, wow, that's that's a very good way to put it. And I think a lot of us can understand that in, in so many different ways coming from the, the secular world into the church. But it, it seems like he's finally kind of separated the identity aspect from the behavior and making that that distinction and understanding. And I'm so glad you brought him up because that whole thing is just now is just now exploding. I think he just did like a four hour podcast with uh, yeah, Patrick Coffin or Salmons or one of those guys. I, I think uh, yeah. Coffin. I think it's Coffin. Coffin. Okay. Um, I haven't listened to it, but um, I agree with. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of. There's a there's a gal who has a little blog, Dimphna, Dimphna's Road. Um, yes, yes, yes. And she's 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 fierce and she's wise and she just made a little blurb and she summed it all up for me. She just said, "I'm not jumping on this 100 person. The whole Milo ex gay." thing um let's just cool our jets here folks and if he's serious about this let him you know let him work through it and and Mm -hmm, and pray mm -hmm. for him and and we're all rooting that's a hundred percent it's all a hundred percent legit and that it's going to be a hundred percent successful i mean obviously we're not rooting against anybody reverting and he i think his would be a reversion um to the true faith and and confessing his sin however however from his track record, from his past history, the fact that he is still living with his fake sodomite husband, and just listening to the tone of these interviews that he's giving, in my experience, one of the one of the key um, tells with regards to whether or not whether or not a man 
or I guess I suppose you could you could apply this to women too. But I've not I've not hardly known any lesbians in my life. So um, all I can speak to is men, men who have same sex attraction, whether active or not. If they're serious about walking away from that and being legit ex-gay, they stop acting like campy queenie fags Mm, be mm -hmm. very cautious about some guy who's traipsing around and either denying he's gay and everybody knows that he is or or like milo coming out and saying i'm ex-gay okay you want to prove to me that you're ex-gay let's cut all this campy behavior let's cut all of this um vulgar ribald talk about you know sodomy and and things like that and you know i he still was making jokes about lusting after black football players and that stuff like that like wait 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 wait, 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 wait. if this guy has really fallen on his knees at the foot of the cross and said lord jesus deliver me deliver me from this he wouldn't be he wouldn't be doing that so like i said we're hoping for the best with this but everybody needs to just calm down and don't be all like oh my gosh, he's totally ex-gay now. Well, wait, you know, I think, I think Joseph Shambra has proven that he is legit ex-gay and that he has talked about the need to, you know, for lack of a better word, and this is where the euphemism comes from, straightening up, you know, um, right. you need to straighten up. And I, uh, years ago, I met a guy who was one of these extraordinarily flamboyant, um, brideshead revisited type dressers and you know would wear just brightly colored suits and all this that and the other and he he um came out as ex-gay and the first thing he did was he threw away his entire wardrobe and went Uh, out and bought pants that fit him properly you know like a sane human being and muted color he still dresses impeccably he looks fantastic but it's now he looks like a respectable man, you know, and that's that's a real uh, precision that I think people aren't getting. And I think there are some straight guys hanging around trad culture and trad parishes who don't understand this difference. They look and they think that the whole um, reaction against this culture and casual dress, especially amongst men. I mean, Mm -hmm. at at this point, I mean, just looking at American men and how they dress in this flip-flops and pajamas situation at all times, it's just, it's nauseating. And I think a lot of these guys who are straight, but in these trad milieus, they think that the reaction against that is to be full-on brideshead revisited and be wearing pink paisley and stuff like that and it's not what i'm saying is men need to go back and just look at any movie from the 1930s 1940s 1950s just look at how those men are dressed it's conservative it's um you know demure colors there's nothing flamboyant about it and they look fantastic look at pictures pull up pictures of like cary grant cary grant or opening day Uh, of the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1948 and there's a picture of you know the the baseball stadium everybody there every man is wearing a suit and you know that would be in the spring in New York so it would be cold enough everybody's wearing a suit a coat a fedora the women are all in dresses and hats some of them wearing gloves I mean 
it's it's just unbelievable and not one of those men looks like a fag you you can dress like a completely respectable super well-dressed elegant masculine man and it doesn't mean that you're dressing like you're you know going to oxford in 1928 and you know sleeping with every other guy in your dorm you know that's <laughs> that, no it, you're taking it way to some other horrible ex- ex- extreme and i'm sorry but evil and man that dude he he must have answered for a lot at his particular judgment and i think his general judgment when it's shown how influential his stuff continues to be and his attempt to legitimize that culture and uh it's just it, it have you read brideshead or watched the watch it's the film? been so long but yes i i know the general so you know outline. what i'm talking yeah. about so mm-hmm. you can go and if you can watch either from the miniseries which was in i think 1980 or 1981 or there was they tried to remake it they made a movie of it in the 2000s i can't remember what year but in like the mid 2000s and it's not very good because you can't you can't compactify all of that into two hours and 20 minutes but in both of those um in in both of those versions of Brideshead and of course in the book so what Waugh did is he put a speech in the mouth of um, Lord Marchmain's Italian mistress Cara and she explains to the protagonist Charles Ryder how homosexuality was completely normal and it's the only way that a young man can learn how to uh, learn about sex and learn how to be a man is by having sexual activities with other young men at boarding school or whatever it's just total self-justification and 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 i can't tell you how many guys i mean it was it's kind of there's a joke that's made that at the venerable english college at rome they they read brideshead as as vespers in the evening you know they read it aloud because they're all a lot of them there's a clique of them that are trying to be like that and it's it's pathetic and sad and also many of them turn out to be raging falling down drunk alcoholics imagine that imagine being in seminary um gay and having and trying to deal psychologically with the the cognitive dissonance of all of that they end up being falling down drunk alcoholics by the time they're 24 you know it's just it's just yeah it's like the deeper issues aren't really addressed at least in the millennial groups that i've been in 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 the trad millennial groups so many of us um kind of came to this once we realized that the promises of our parents and of our schools like didn't come to fruition right like i remember you know sitting at my desk at a top pr firm it was my first job out of my master's degree i had my ivy league master's degree on the wall and i was like when does happiness start? I mean, mm-hmm. this is what my parents told me would make me happy. This is what that feminist school pushed me to do. And now I'm empty and I don't know what else to do. And that's what really started me uh, digging for deeper answers. But when I see a lot of millennials coming to the church, you see just exactly what you're talking about, the the emphasis on dressing, the obsession with like looking a certain way, almost hoping that that, that will become an inner reflection. And what, unfortunately, I think so many of us need to do and continue to do is we all have these family of origin issues 
there, if you've lived a life outside of the traditional church, you probably didn't understand the, the, you know, the weight of sin or the, the impact of your behaviors on your psyche and on, on your spiritual life. And coming to the Latin mass and looking like, you know, this way or that is not a magic talisman. I mean, you have to have that you know, dark night of the soul within yourself with Christ in a personal relationship with him mm-hmm. to bring that to fruition and focusing on the externals, you know, are, it, it, it's like, you know, it's a convenient way to, to, to put stuff somewhere, but it's not like digging to the real work. But that being said, of course, you know, everyone should be looking their very best. Um, but in the millennial subset, that's really what I'm seeing with the men. It's this kind of dandy, um, you know, uh, pattern, um, not really digging down more deeply but at the same time you feel bad for them because society has not really given men a chance to be men yeah families have not over a lot of them have really overbearing mothers the father isn't really present um that's like the brokenness of, of folks coming into the traditional milieu and so if there's any priests listening to this or you know folks in seminary i mean th- this is the help that people need and this is where they're coming from it's a continual need for catechesis and and spiritual work you know and it's arduous well and the thing you know, I'm 44, and given my situation in life, I'm just so totally removed from any of the courting or any of those dynamics. But I just shudder when I sit and think about how, how when it, when all women are being trained to believe that if a man makes eye contact with her, much less tries to strike up a conversation, much less ask her out on a date, that she's now supposed to think that he is attempting to sexually assault her or something like that. Mm-hmm. If you're a female, how, how in the world are you going to meet anybody that would be a good and fit husband if that is your mindset? And that's why we see young girls running around with fruity little gay boys all the time. I mean, it's so sad to see it, you know, just in the neighborhood where I live, you see the kids walking back and forth from school. And I mean, you can just, you can just pick them out instantly. There's a gaggle of four girls and then there's a boy and he is clearly effeminate or or feminine. Um, And okay, so how are the girls going to ever enter into any sort of a healthy relationship if all men are presumed to be rapists? What guy wants anything to do with women if not only does he know he's presumed to be a rapist, but she will have the power to utterly, totally, completely, legally and financially destroy him at any moment for any reason? And, you know, knowing the moral, the moral quality of people in the world today and the, the facility and the frequency with which people lie today, especially young people, and think nothing of it, um, how, how as a young man could you ever possibly justify that risk? And I just, I look at these kids and now of course everybody's under lockdown and nobody can go anywhere and no, nobody can do anything. And it, it is all 100% part of the Luciferian thing to keep people away from each other, to keep people from getting married, to keep people from breeding. Um, it's all part of the of the auto-genocide plan that Bill Gates and Soros and all these people have for the culture, but ultimately who's behind all of it is Lucifer. 
It's the, it's the attack on the family. It's the attack on marriage. Get people to where everybody is alone. Everybody is diabolically narcissistic. And then where it all ends is eventually, like I said, circling back, like Jen Psaki, circling back. Um, <laughs> they're going to be lining up, begging the government to set up euthanasia, euthanasia centers for them. And uh, it's all part it's, of it. Yeah. It's such a boiling frog situation that it, only those who have eyes to see I think can can kind of see what's going on, and that that is that leads to that political futility of I mean, is there is not an, there are not enough people who know what's actually happening, understand the true remedy, and can actually band together to effectively carry out a plan to rectify and address it. And so, yeah, it's it's definitely I think all I mean I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day. She she's expecting, and so she you know, was asking me some questions as a new mom, and you know we we both were just kind of like, man, this is a really difficult time. Time to be having children, to be in this vocation. It's, you know, because once you have a kid, as, as I know you've heard, I mean, it's just, it's such an all encompassing love. It's something like you've never experienced before and you would do anything for your child. And I, I don't fear martyrdom per se, but the thought of, you know, what would happen to my children? I mean, that's, that's what really gets a lot of us and, and trying to comfort each other the other day, I think we kind of came to these, this conclusion of, well, you know, it's better to die young, um, you know, as, as a, as a, you know, my age and have the true faith than live to 90 and die a Protestant, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, yeah. I mean, let's, let's be real with what's, what really matters here. And then, you know, if you have children under the age of seven and there is something that happens, well, they're, they're a saint, you know, if they're under the age of reason. So, you know, I think of St. Louis, um, you know, the, the, I forget what number he is, but he, he was the saint. Nice. Um, Ninth, the ninth, mm -hmm. um, and you know his mother saying, "I would rather you die than commit a mortal sin," because she truly understands spiritual death versus corporal death, and so I think that's where this is a very hard time to be in right now. It's very mentally taxing. It gets definitely anxiety producing, but at the same time, we've got that pearl. We've got that pearl of great price. And this is an opportunity, I think, to get down to brass tacks on what our faith is, to have hope in our Lord, to enjoy every TLM you go to, to enjoy every confession you're able to go to in peace and just hunker down. I mean, I guess that's all I can say. You yeah, know? I mean, what I'm telling people now that have kids is you, you have to give them to God. You have, and like say it audibly, you know, if you have to go into a church when it's empty or whatever, or, you know, go kneel outside next to the outside wall where the tabernacle is and audibly with your voice, say it. I'm giving them to you. They're, they're, your, they're yours from the beginning to start with anyway. And whatever you need to happen to them, your will be done. And I understand that that could ultimately mean that they that they are murdered, because you know obviously that's what our that's what our culture is careening toward. Um, and have that piece of and it sounds weird. It sounds like oh, this is you're trying to tell people to be like psychopathically detached from their own children. No, that's what I'm saying. But you you do in a certain sense need to have that sort of detachment in the sense of giving them back to God. Because if you don't, then that what that indicates is what you were just talking about, that you don't have your mindset on the true end of all human life, which is the beatific vision. If you're completely fixated on earthly concerns, which is material comfort all the way up to length of years, um, it's, if it's better for them to die young and God needs them to die young 
um, then you need to be you need to be okay with that. And if you can make that that tangible verbal act of surrender to give your children to God and entrust them to Him, then I. I I think that would at least help a little bit so that you wouldn't just be completely anxiety ridden. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like we, you know, we had the traditional baptism for our daughter and the um, consecration to Mary at the altar with her. And I just, yeah, I, I think back to that of I've done everything I could to give my children, you know, my child um, as much grace as possible, you know, within the, the traditional sacraments, we dedicated her to our lady. And um, yeah, I mean, I think the reason why we have a generation, the millennial generation is, is kind of, you know, super narcissistic and psychopathic mm-hmm. is because a lot of parents look at their children as reflections of them. Mm. So if my, you know, I can brag about my kid because and to be quite honest with you, I was so driven to, to, to get an Ivy League education to please my parents. That was probably the biggest motivator is to know that they wanted to brag about that, especially my father as an immigrant. You know, that was his that was his dream for me. That was what he considered success. So in a way, it warped our relationships. It warped a lot of my life decisions. I wonder what would it have been like to have been raised by parents who just said, you know, we want God's will for you, discern that, and here's the tools. Mm-hmm. So that it is a way more healthy perspective to have of, you know, and, and I have a close family member who means a lot to me, but you know, it doesn't look like they're coming to the faith anytime soon. And I finally just said, you know, God, I give it up to you. If they make it, it was your will and I'll rejoice. And if they don't, that was your will. And I rejoice in that too. And you just try to get to that place of healthy detachment. Yeah. And there's also kind of circling back also to what we were talking about, about, you know, homosexuals and how pervasive that is in the culture. Um, advice, especially to young girls, but I mean, it applies to everybody, but in, in the vein of exactly what you were talking about, um, young girls, you, if you want to have a, a good, solid boyfriend, husband, you know, family and all that, step number one is you have got to not be running around with, with gay guys, because that is, that is like red flag up the flagpole numero uno that straight guys look at and and say okay she's completely surrounded by by homosexual boys and men um that probably means that she's a train wreck number one and number two if i if I enter into a relationship with her, she's going to expect me to be friends with all those gay guys, and I want nothing to do with that. So what the girls are doing by running around with the gay guys is that they're sterilizing themselves, basically. They're they're just poisoning their own chances, and it's so essential right now that you not do that because so many boys are going gay. It's like the Chinese with their one child policy and their, you know, their demographics are completely out of whack. And there's way more men than women in China. Well, the situation is the reverse right now for young people in um, the former Christian West. So many boys are falling into sodomy that now there's way more girls. And so, um, you need to not put yourself behind the eight ball and not handicap yourself by running around with gay men because it's 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 never ever going 
to, it's not going to attract a good straight man. And I think that if I remember correctly, a good example of this in popular culture is that horrible television show, Sex in the City. Here's, oh, the, yeah. here's these four women. They're all single. They're all about 40 years old. And they're all surrounded by gay men. Each one of them has a pet fag. And they're wondering, well, you know, why am I not married? Probably because of the company you keep. And it, this, this applies not just to young girls. It goes all the way up. And it applies in the trad Catholic culture. Um, you, you will go into certain uh, trad Catholic cliques. And here's a bunch of gay men. And then here's these women tagging along with these gay men guess which woman which women in that parish are never going to be asked out are never going to be courted by a good solid heterosexual man the 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 women who were running with the fags have absolutely no chance none and you know whenever i tried i've tried to talk about this just again owing to my experience growing up in a city like this and having gay friends when i was younger outside the church i get i don't want to say shamed but people will say well you don't know for sure you you know you shouldn't say that or you know give them the benefit of the doubt and and i kind of just i want to tell them like it's okay to trust your gut and it's okay to see when there are red flags and it's okay to, um, you know, have that kind of judgment on yourself as it applies to your personal life of what's best for you and what's not. And um, to have that confidence in your gut to say, there's something off here. And I think that that's, I mean, isn't that what we're all dealing with on in the church, in politics, in culture, is we have been taught to ignore, um, you know, obvious yep. red flags for yep. the sake of, I mean, you know, there's been many homilies I've heard from across the spectrum of, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Um, you know, and, and of course, that's a generally good uh, sentiment, but except for when it comes to, um, you know, discerning this stuff and how it impacts your spiritual life, or as you just pointed out, how it would impact your, your future vocation, your marital life. I mean, unfortunately, to say, I have known several men who fit this exact description in the traditional communities I've seen where they were years single, dressing very dandy-ish, very feminine affectation, and all of a sudden a new girl comes into the parish and they get engaged. And we're thinking, do, do they know? Are they sure? Am I right about this? Am I wrong about this? And, you know, many of them I think might want to marry into the traditional structure. Perhaps that's what they're yearning for, but they're not taking the steps to maybe turn away from same-sex attraction or, you know, whatever it is you want to say. Um, and it's very sad. And I think there's a lot of traditional women, especially now I'm in a parish that um, there's a lot of folks who were actually raised traditional and a little mm -hmm. enclave and they don't know how the homosexual cultures work yeah. and what these men look like. And I just kind of want to be like, ladies, <laughs> you know, so I think it's, it's a, that's a, that's a great point. And I am service so to kind of talk about this and to say, it's okay to trust your gut. What, well, the technical theological term for trusting your gut in this in this context, um, I believe, if I remember from my theology handbooks, it's called gaydar. I think that's the technical term. For it. I'm pretty sure. Was was that in ought? I can't remember. Ought chapter four, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so glad you brought that up because it's true. I think because you've got two, you've got two different cultures in tradidom. You've got what. 
for lack of a better word, but everybody knows exactly what you mean when you say this. You've got kind of the Amish yes. side, you know, yes. you know. Yep. And yep. okay, and these these kids are all raised in homeschool, and they have they don't have TV, and I mean that's great and everything. Great, yeah. And then you have the other side who are worldly, who who are converts coming in, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the Amish people, including the parents, have no idea. And so they tell themselves, well, you know, that guy talks like that because he's a classicist from New England and he's re- and he has a really high IQ. So that's yes, why he yes. talks funny like that. No, he no. talks funny <laughs> like that because he does horrible genital things with other dudes. <laughs> that's why he talks like that. Yes. Yes. So yes. And, and the Amish people are clueless and then the people on the other side are trying to, I don't know, you can't use another person to work work through that. I mean, I'm not saying that there's no way for a person who has previously engaged in sodomitical acts to ever um, reform and get married, but for some of them, it's it's too deep seated. They just did too much, and if they're trying to enter into a marriage. It would only be um, maybe for show or to, you know, look legitimate in the eyes of the parents. Or I, I, I don't even know. But you cannot. And it's, it's, it's incredibly narcissistic to even attempt to use another person in that way. To enter into anything other than a completely rock solid marriage based on truth and honesty and you know, all that good stuff. So, well, I think a lot of the men know what the church teaching is and in some, on some level do respect it, but they, they, there's no will perhaps to, to actually make that change or, and so that you, I think you do see situations where the marriage is um, to save face, you know, publicly or, or with the family or trying to assuage their own senses of guilt or whatever that's, again, I would, if this was just a really weird one-off, I don't think I'd bring it up, but it's actually it's not, to the point, it's not. It, it's not a weird a one-off and coming from major metropolitan areas where, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it enough to say, Ooh, you know, yeah, it, it is something to to be aware of if you're a young Catholic girl. And honestly, I think if, if, you know, this age, you know, could have any tattoo across its forehead, especially in this situation, it's, you know, be innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. You know, you have to discern with that, um, with that, that worldly view to be able to avoid the evil that the world can, can infiltrate into the, into your communities. Yeah. So. And we've seen that it's, that it's everywhere. It's right, left, center. And um, at a certain point, I wish that that um, that trad men especially would stand up and when they see really campy behavior from men in the parish that they they pull those guys aside and say, look, you either cut this crap out and you straighten up or we we want you out of here because there are kids in this parish and sodomites, uh, you know, flamboyant sodomites especially are an obvious risk to to children and we're not going to put up with this crap 
and I wish more men would stand up, but then, you know, men won't do that today because, oh no, he might hire a lawyer and sue me for hate crimes or something like that, or report me to my employer, get me doxxed, put my information on the internet, da 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 you know? And right. so you can't, you can't even defend your own children from sex perverts. And I mean, we're seeing this with the whole trannies in the bathrooms and, and all of that stuff too, but it's even f- trickled into trad Catholic milieus where nobody, nobody can even step up and say, this behavior is unacceptable and it is unacceptable and it's obscene. It's a species of obscenity. And the reason why male campy gay queenie behavior is just in and of itself a species of obscenity is because it points directly to sodomitical acts. Men who act like that do those things. things and, yeah. and so they're they're projecting that and they're trying to project it to each other and they're trying to impose it on on other people and then just daring everyone to come to come back at them and tell them to knock it off. We need to start telling them to knock it off. And we started on this by talking about Milo. Um, I think some of the best um, constructive feedback that Milo could get at this point is, if you are serious about this, you need to prove it and you need to straighten up. And you, you could totally do it. It's all affectation. I've seen, I have seen homosexual men turn it on and off like a light switch like a light switch and and people say oh no that's not possible he's always like that no 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 not always um it's it's a choice it's a freely chosen behavior so milo if you're listening if you're serious if you want us to to really 100 percent believe you if you're serious the first thing you got to do is you got to cut all of the gay behavior all of it so that's... Right, and he and he may be struggling as well to understand what his public persona is, like post-gay. All I would say is your soul is so much more important. If, if that means no more career because you yep. can't bank off of the flamboyancy, yep. oh, well, eternity is more is more important. That's so, right. Then you can go, you, for you. You yeah. can go get janitorial work. I mean, seriously, it's better to do that than to think, well, I, the only way anybody will employ me or read any of my stuff is if I'm um, engaging in um, obscene affectation, which points to sodomy. Nope. Sorry. Sorry, bud. You either straighten up or, or just walk away right I'm, i don't expect me to be defending your every word i want to see and what are we a week into this process um yeah, i want to yeah. see some some consistent long-term changes in behavior and then then i'll uh then I'll be a little bit more vociferous in my in my support. Well, it seems like he said he was talking to some priests, which is good. I hope they, you know, continue that with him. Um, and just going to what you were saying about calling out kind of some homosexual activities or or just affectations in parishes. I I had noticed in one parish that I had gone to that there was a growing contingency of of these types of men, and they would be sitting up at the front. They kind of co- created their own 
click. Mm-hmm. And the pastor, who was a man's man's man, he was former army, no nonsense. Um, I think he noticed and just made sure to be going up to them after mass with a bit of a stern look, like, hey, what do you, you know, what are you guys up to? Like what, you know, he he didn't say anything per se, but I think he was just making his presence known. Mm-hmm. And, and I noticed that it dispersed. So I think that that's really important too for pastors to know um, whether traditional or not, if you have such power and authority, you know, in your position and um, people want that father figure that does the right thing, that does the hard thing and you'll be loved for it and respected for it as well. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, we're at a buck 40. Um, this is kind of our traditional show length. Um, this is wonderful. I, I hope to have you back. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've been talking a while about doing um, kind of a roundtable like a McLaughlin group, except <laughs> the Barnhart group, <laughs> except we're, we're really, it took us a while to get to get this. Um, we're using wire as our platform for um, yeah. the telephony to record. And uh, I think this is the last time I'm going to use wire because it's just it's nerve-wrackingly unreliable so we're gonna have to figure something else out we're gonna have to do it so we can get about five people on at once and just you know go go crazy get get like nurse claire and get every get like mark and dr matzah and everybody right oh man oh that'd be awesome so that's we're gonna try to do that we just need to find a platform to do it okay Um, we'll look we'll look Absolutely. So thank you so much, Vanessa. Such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Anne. I I will now do my little wrap up. Um, This whole joint is made possible by the efforts of Super Nerd, who does all of the post-production on everything, including the episodes that he does not appear on. So if you would like to throw a little love Super Nerd's way, um, his website is supernerdmedia.com. And I think you can click and there's a donate. And I think he's back onto PayPal. So that's all over there. Um, I always talk about the Matthew 17, 20 intention, which is fasting two days a week if you can, and then um, just pray without ceasing our fourfold intention that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and that the whole thing be nullified. That Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living vicar of Christ since April of 2005. That Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace in the fullness of time, and someday achieve the beatific vision. And that Pope Benedict XVI repent of anything that he might need to repent of, as we all do, um, die in a state of grace in the fullness of time and someday achieve the beatific vision. Nothing less than that will do. Our Lady, undoer of knots, pray, pray for, for us. <laughs> All right. Amen. And so thank you, Vanessa Deer. And until next time, I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless. 